You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. no formality. God is addressing us through his word. Starting in chapter 14, our text comes from verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leopard, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Extravagance. The Oxford English Dictionary defines extravagance as lacking restraint in spending money or using resources. Years ago, I worked at a very fancy restaurant, and the cost of an average meal for two was around 150 USD. That was a lot before uh, COVID. And I'll never forget, on one Saturday night, two of us waiters were assigned to help only one table for the entirety of the evening. Apparently, the owner wanted every bit of our attention to be directed only on these very important guests. Well, eventually, three men and two women arrived, and we sat these five at a table in our private room. They had a five-course meal, and for each course, they ordered the most expensive items on the menu. As for drinks... The wine was freely flowing from bottles, retailing in the hundreds. And in one case, they ordered a bottle over $1,000. What I found most strange was that these two women did not touch their plates. They ordered the most expensive meals, 
but they didn't even take one bite. And it was my responsibility to go to these tables and remove their untouched plates at the end of each course. It was also my responsibility to scrape their plates into the rubbish or the trash. And I was burning with this indignation as I did so. I might have taken a couple bites. Well, at the close of their meal, the men requested we bring an this old, from the, from the days of Abraham Lincoln, 150-year-old bottle of whiskey to their table. And at our restaurant, one ounce of this drink, it sold for 400 USD. They each had two shots. And at the end of their three-hour evening, their bill came to nearly 6,000 USD. That is extravagance. Extravagance is judged as wasteful in nearly every culture. And to live extravagantly is to exceed what is responsible, what is appropriate. It's to be lacking in restraint. It's a negative thing. But in the text we just read, the extravagance of a singular woman is actually put forward as positive. Indeed, extravagance is being portrayed as the appropriate, the proper response to the person of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11 is something of a sandwich. If you look at the text for me, let's consider something of an outline. In verses 1 through 2, we see the religious leaders are plotting Christ's murder. Fast forward to the end, and in verses 10 and 11, Judas betrays Jesus to assist in their scheme. You could call the first portion and the final portion the bread. The meat of the sandwich, however, is in the middle, wherein this woman pours out extravagant love upon Jesus, and the comparing and contrasting of these two responses to Jesus are meant to highlight for us the woman's extravagance, forcing you and me to make a decision. These polar opposites are calling upon you to decide. Indeed, you're being called to make daily decisions. How will you live before this Jesus today? And the proper response to Jesus is extravagance. What we're going to see in the text today is this, because heaven has poured out extravagant love upon you, you in turn are to pour out extravagant love upon the person of Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 9. The word gospel is used. And it's used alongside, next to, the woman's extravagance. The gospel is heaven's extravagant love poured out on you. And the proper response is to pour out extravagant love, celebratory, extravagant love on the person of Jesus. If you're taking notes, my outline will be very simple today. It's really just going to be twofold. We're going to take the necessary time to make an observation, one, one great big observation in our text. And then secondly, we're going to encounter something of a principle that you and I can put into practice. Well, chapter 14 is the longest in Mark, and it tells of Christ's 
long and slow abandonment. And in the verses ahead, Jesus' dear friend and disciple will make the decision to join his enemies in their scheme to murder him. And in his hour of greatest need, the rest of his friends, they will flee. They will flee from his side. Peter, who promises this unflinching loyalty and a willingness even to die, will quake in cowardice as he denies his Lord. Jesus will be condemned by the state of Rome. He will be rejected by his culture, his people, and indeed his religion. Everything will culminate in chapter 15 when Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross just outside Jerusalem. And as the blood shoots from his, the fount of his stripped naked body, even God himself, God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, will abandon him, leaving him to die alone. Listen, what lies ahead for Christ is this bleak abandonment, and it starts right now. Verses 1 and 2, the religious leaders are looking secretly for a way to catch and kill Jesus. This is proving a bit difficult. It's a a holiday season. It's Passover. It's Passover. Scholars estimate that Jerusalem had swollen to perhaps 200,000 pilgrims. Finding Jesus would prove difficult in such crowds. That's why when we come to the end of our text in verse 11, the religious leaders are glad that Judas will help them. They're even willing to give Judas some money for some inside information. Where's Jesus going to be? so that they can catch him secretly and kill him secretly. But despite their plans, killing Jesus quietly is going to prove an impossible task because God is sovereign over this and he foils their schemes and the public murder of his son will go down in history whether you're a Christian or not as the most influential act in all of human history. For this Passover lamb would be slaughtered for the sins of the world. Let's consider a bit of context. In chapter 13, in chapter 13, the Jerusalem temple has been doomed by Jesus. Jesus says it's utterly going to be destroyed for the pride and the hypocrisy that it has come to represent this false religion. And then in Mark's gospel, Jesus never returns to this temple. He leaves it, in verse 13, never to return to it. So at the outset of our text, we ask the question, where has Jesus gone? In verse 3, we're given his location. He has crossed the Kidron Valley. He's gone up, probably passed through uh, the the um, Mount of Olives. And here he is in Bethany, and he's in the home of one Simon the leper. 
There's deep meaning here. Yahweh incarnate has rejected the clean and beautiful temple as his dwelling place. He's lived it, but he is now here. He's here in the home of one who is ceremonially unclean. You see, as a leper, Simon wouldn't have even been able to enter the temple. He can't even get close to it. And Jesus has come knocking upon Simon, the leper's door. He's come in and he has made his home. I want you to see him. See how he is comfortable around sinners. See how he's comfortable with the unclean, with the diseased in verse 3. Look, he's reclining. He has not turned away. He's come to them, seeking them out. No doubt, in the presence of Jesus, Simon the leper is a leper no more. The table that has been set here is a feast of free grace. The extravagance of heaven is being poured out into this living room. And as Jesus is reclining, verse 3b reads, A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Clearly, this woman was not part of this dinner party. In line with Jewish customs, only men were sitting around this table. And the text says she came, she entered, as it were, and broke an alabaster flask of pure nard. Now, nard was an expensive, fragrant oil imported from India. And alabaster was a precious stone carved into a container. Verse 5 informs us that it was worth 300 denarii, which was equivalent to one entire year worth of a laborer's salary. No doubt this alabaster jar of nard was something of a family heirloom kept in a safe space and used very sparingly, if at all. I was just flying a 26-hour flight here, and as I did, I went through the, uh, the duty-free shops, and I saw the world-famous, the most, the most uh, sold perfume in all the world, Coco Chanel. Coco Chanel's got nothing. On this, years worth of salary. We're not going to break this thing open. We're going to use it sparingly, maybe a spray here, and maybe next year at Christmas, another spray. Yet verse 3 reports, she broke it. That is, she smashed it. What is going on here? The the broken jaw represents the totality of her gift. There's no turning back. This alabaster jar, it cannot ever be used again. It's smashed. It must now all be used upon Jesus or it will be wasted. What this woman is doing is considered unacceptable on multiple levels. She has broken the rules of her culture. She has broken the rules of economics. She has broken the rules of her religion. This is extravagance. Imagine the scene. 
Jesus is most probably with his disciples, Simon Peter, perhaps others enjoying a meal around the table, some unnamed woman coming from nowhere enters the room and approaches the reclining Jesus. She bends down on her knees next to him. All eyes in the room are on her. The meal has officially been interrupted. She is not discreet, but rather there on the ground next to Jesus, she dramatically breaks this alabaster jar. Jesus says nothing. Awkward. Very, very awkwardly, she slowly pours out the entirety of this amber-colored oil upon his his head. Jesus does not stop her. And the scene, it actually lasts for some time. It's not this quick pour and get out. Thanks for letting me do that. She must pour it slowly so that the precious ointment does not spill or splash off. It is running down his hair, down his face. It drips from his beard onto his chest, soaking his tunic. The most heavenly aroma uh, fills the room, smelling of patchouli and spice and this sweet wood. As she pours this pure nard from, from her once treasured but now broken alabaster jar, the people are becoming indignant. They're angry. They're annoyed. They're ashamed. She looks so silly. Like an ignorant, countryside, uneducated buffoon who doesn't understand life in the city here in Jerusalem. You're embarrassing us with your lack of taste, your lack of class. Have you no dignity, woman? What a waste. Somebody announces self-righteously, this could have been sold for a year's salary and the money, it could have been given to the poor. I wonder how would you have responded had you been sitting around table with Christ? It really all depends on what you think of Jesus, doesn't it? What price tag can you put on Jesus? What's Jesus retailing for in the economy of your heart this morning? She continues pouring in silence, deaf to the comments apparently. All she sees is Jesus. He is altogether worthy of every drop. Not one drop will be wasted. She will drain this jar to its dregs. And as she does, the people will continue to scold her. What's here? It's here in Bethany, not in the temple across the Kidron Valley. Here in the home of a leper and here in the company of this unrefined woman. The place where we would least expect to find an all 
inspiring example of discipleship. Discipleship just means to, to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus finally speaks up. He's not embarrassed by her. Quite the opposite. For those paying attention, Jesus actually receives her gift. He accepts it. I think you could say, Jesus is happy. You see the smiling Jesus reclining at table. Verses 6 through 7, we find him defending her extravagance, saying, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? (laughs) She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you. and Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. See, it was customary to give in the Jewish culture at, at uh, holiday seasons like, like Passover to give to the poor. Jesus is not callously saying, forget about the poor. No, not at all. The entirety of the Bible reveals God's heart for the poor. God commands his people to care for the impoverished, to care for the suffering. And so the, the biting comment to sell the nard and give the money to the poor, it's actually quite fitting. Except in this case. In which it's entirely inappropriate. In this case, extravagance is the only appropriate response because the king of heaven has entered the room. In fact, to give to the poor right here when God in the flesh is sitting in my living room, it would be entirely an insult. One scholar comments, in asserting that there could be a better use for the money, they demean Jesus, whom they regard as unworthy of extravagance. Jesus says what she has done is beautiful. You'll always have the poor, but not me. Not me. Me. Recognize the personhood of Jesus at the end of verse 7 in that word, that little two-letter word, me. You see, this woman was not responding to a theological system. She's not responding to a list of rules, not a list of doctrines or an idea found in a book. No, she's responding to me, the person of Jesus. Heaven has sent this extravagant gift to this house in Bethany, and the proper response is this extravagant joy. The proper response to Jesus is not some mourning, but it's celebration, isn't it? What we've done this morning. Christian life is a life of celebrating the King, King Jesus, and what He's like. And now Jesus honors this woman, saying she has done what she could In other words, holding nothing back, this woman has given everything that she has. And I'm I'm so affected by, by how Jesus responds next, what he says next. In the second half of verse 8, he explains that there is significant meaning in her seemingly wasteful act. He says, look at the text. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. In the ancient Near East, the corpses of the dead were anointed with oils to cover the smell of the, the rotting flesh before burial. This woman could not have known the significance of her actions, but Jesus knew. See in verse 8. He knows what's coming. Jesus' mind is thinking about the death that is awaiting him. And this woman sitting around the table with Jesus is the last person who will do any kindness to him. She's the only person to celebrate Jesus and she gives him everything that she's got. The disciples, my best friends, are about to forsake me. They're going to deny me. My people are going to judge me. They're going to crucify me. My father will abandon me and as a result, I will be crucified for the sins of of those who sinned against me. I will die as a substitute for the sins of my disciples, for these women, and for those people 2,000 years from now at Grace Miami. And I will be buried. Why? Why was Jesus buried? This brings us to the great observation of our text. Why was Jesus buried? Why would he be buried? Jesus poured out his blood for you because you are precious to him. Because you are precious to him, he was buried on your behalf as a substitute in your Place. Listen, at the cross, heaven poured out extravagant love upon a sinful world. How can you measure one worth of the of one of the drop of one drop of Jesus' blood? At the cross, you see another jar was broken. There was another jar, a precious jar that was broken, and that was the jar of God's wrath towards sinners. And each one of us in this room, we, we deserve God's righteous anger towards sin. The sin we have loved, that he has hated. The Bible teaches that the wages, the, 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 the salary, if you will, of sin is death. You might not think Christianity's message of wrath has any place in 2023. How can a good God judge so many people in an everlasting hell? If that's you, friend, it's because you know nothing of the worth of God. You know nothing of the sinfulness of your own sin the wickedness of your offenses towards God. But at the cross, 
the only man who never sinned, died in your place as a substitute for all your sins. Doesn't that show how serious sin is to God? The next time you open your phone and just haphazardly look at porn, the next hookup that you have that you think, this is, this is insignificant, the world does it, my culture does it. Think about the culture of heaven and what it cost Jesus. The cross is the proof, whether you feel it or not, the heinousness of your crimes against the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it was God the Father who broke heaven's alabaster jar, which should have been broken on my head. It should have been broken on your head. It was broken on the head of Christ Jesus at the cross. And there, like this woman, for you, God the Father, poured out every last drop that was in that heavenly alabaster jar for you. That's why he was buried. That's what's in Jesus' mind. It's what Jesus is thinking about as he sits at table and as this woman anoints his body with oil. Can you see that he was thinking about you 2,000 years ago at that table? If you're new to Christianity, if you're new here this morning, listen, Jesus did not die to be a good example. He didn't die for his teaching. He listened to his teaching, say he's a good teacher. He didn't die for his own sins. He didn't die so you could watch some movie like The Passion and get sentimental and tear up and then walk away. Jesus died for you in your place. Heaven has poured out extravagance upon you. If you're not a Christian from the heart, then it is my God-given responsibility as an ambassador of heaven to command you right now, believe in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe now. Why, why would you walk through those double doors at the end of this service the way you came in, dead in your trespasses and sins? Why not go out of those doors saved? Born of the Spirit, united to the person of Jesus. Come to Jesus right now. Come to His person and you will be saved. Jesus concludes his defense of this woman in verse 9, saying, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. If you're a skeptic, if you refuse to, to believe in Jesus because you just think, how, how could this ever have been true? How could, how could a man die and be resurrected? 
Do you know anybody else who's that accurate? Who, who from world history are we celebrating today but that dead man who rose from the dead and said, I'm going to be talking about this woman all over the world. The proof is Grace Miami this morning. Prophecy? Check. This verse 9 is the last time we find the word gospel in Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark. The gospel is always good news. Don't twist it. The, the gospel is always about what God did for sinners and not what sinners do for God. Repentance isn't the gospel. Christ crucified for sinners is the gospel. As one of my pastors once said, if you could put the gospel into an espresso maker and get it in its most condensed form, what would come out is that Jesus saves sinners. Got that from Pastor Eric years ago. The gospel is always good news. But the word gospel is placed in our text directly after his comments about his burial. And we're reminded that the death of Jesus Christ is ironically not bad news, but it is good news. The, the good news of God, but with this woman's actions being placed in the very same sentence as the word gospel, what we're being taught is that the proper response of the gospel, the proper response to the gospel, what is it? The intended effect that this text is supposed to have upon our lives is that we would mimic this woman's example. This woman, her example has been given to us to teach us how we ought to respond to Jesus. And this brings us to the great principle of our text. The principle of our text is because Jesus is precious to you, pour out your life for Jesus. Pour it all out for Jesus. Repentance and faith are not to be some cold academic exercise of the mind. The person of Jesus is the gospel. His life, his death as a substitute in the place for your sins. And this text is telling you how you ought to respond to the extravagance of the gospel. The proper response to the person of Jesus is self-sacrificial, holding nothing back, all-consuming, reckless, passionate, dramatic, white, hot, seemingly wasteful, extravagant love. Jesus is worthy of your life. Jesus is worthy of your death. Jesus my sweet pastor and his sweet wife is worthy of burnout. Mental exhaustion. Because when you pour out your life for Jesus, nothing is ever wasted. Nothing can be wasted when poured out for Jesus. You know what's so amazing to me about this woman's extravagance? Look with me again at verse 8. See, see that word at the end of verse 8, beforehand. 
She poured out this perfume before Jesus had died for her sins. She saw the loveliness. She, she saw the preciousness of Christ before she had, he had even died as a substitute for her sins. How much more you and me? We, on this side of the cross, 2,000 years after the cross, we have so much more reason to celebrate Jesus with extravagance than this woman ever had. I wonder if Jesus were here. I wonder if Jesus followed you around Miami for a week. I wonder if Jesus would defend your lifestyle. Like he rushed to the aid of this woman and defended her lifestyle of breaking this alabaster jar. What alabaster jar have you been holding back from Jesus? In the deep closets and the storage units of your heart, what alabaster jar do you have hidden away that you've refused to pour out for Jesus? Go get it. Go get it. Even right now as you're listening, break it and pour it on. Pour it on Jesus. Is your alabaster jar just stuff? Materialism, the newest watch, the newest computer, bigger house, nicer car. Once I get that Tesla, are you serious? Break it. Pour it on Jesus. Is your alabaster jar fleeting beauty? I, I fear as one in Ethiopia that it might be beauty. It might be just pure vanity for most of you. When I moved away, I, I noticed years ago that most women's lips looked normal. And as I've come back, I've noticed many lips looking like Kim Kardashian's lips. You know, the day is going to come when you, like Joan Rivers, will be buried. Those lips will be shriveled like a raisin in the sun. Break that, that, that bottle of vanity, that alabaster jar, and pour it on Christ Jesus. wonder how many of you, your alabaster jar is your comfort, your procrastination. Can you imagine reclining upon your bed watching YouTube videos, just endless YouTube videos, three hours, four hours, five hours. Actually, I'm just going to go for the shorts. I'm just going to watch 15-second videos. And I'm just going to waste my life while King Jesus is in my living room reclining. It's one more game of cod. Go break that jar. Why? Go break it. Is your alabaster jar some dating relationship that doesn't glorify God? Perhaps some sinfully sexual relationship. Maybe same sex, uh, a same-sex relationship. Maybe 
maybe some confusion about your, your gender. Oh, go break it and come to Jesus and pour it on his head. It's not worth it. Your identity found in your sexuality? Here is Jesus. Are you kidding me? Come to Jesus. Is your alabaster jar some simple bitterness in your heart? You refuse to forgive those sins that were committed against you in your youth? You refuse to forgive some, some, your spouse, one of your parents. Oh, are you, are you kidding me? Can you, see, can you see what you were forgiven when the Heavenly Father broke that alabaster jar for you? Every crime that you ever committed, past, present, and future. That shame that you refuse to acknowledge. That shame that you know you committed it in your youth. You know what you've done and you've tucked it away in the recesses of your heart, and it's live streaming in heaven. Forgiven at the cross. Even that sin that you're sitting there thinking, could it ever be forgiven? Forgiven at the cross. Our text ends with Judas' abandonment of Christ and the beginning of his betrayal. You see, Jesus was not precious to Judas. I'm curious where the seeds of betrayal, I wonder when they were first planted in his heart. I wonder how long they had been growing. You see, Judas had walked with Christ for three years. He had eaten at the table with him. I wonder at what point Jesus wasn't worthy of following anymore. I wonder at what point Judas said, he's not precious to me anymore. I'll tell you this. It wasn't all in a moment. It was this slow backslide away from Christ until he was eventually out of sight and out of mind, out of heart. It was a slow drift. And yet that forces me to warn each of you that the proclamation of the gospel brings with it a call to immediate action. Immediate action. Immediately. Right now. But it's not a big once and forever decision. No, it's, it's typically not a call to move across the world as a missionary. Typically, not a call to leave a very fruitful and sex successful church and come down where, into Miami and plant a church and, and, and pray God blesses it and someday we'll have a few hundred people sitting in this historic Baptist building. No, it's, it's not typically that. It's often not a monumental decision made at church while a bald pastor is preaching. It's a thousand decisions made every single day and every single week. You're always prioritizing something in every decision that you make. And Judas is a reminder that a rejection of Jesus and your decision making and those thousands of decisions that you make throughout the day, it is suicide. 
it's death. Perhaps you can think of it like this. Your life, your existence here on planet Earth is just one great, massive alabaster jar. And over your lifetime, you make a million decisions on where to break, where to spill it, where, which drop to pour where. With each of those decisions, you're making a statement to the world around you, just like this woman. What do you prioritize as precious? What is precious to you? You're making a statement to Jesus. Have you seen the preciousness of Christ? J.C. Ryle puts it like this. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? He will fear wasting time, talents, money, affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of wasting them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure. But he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. The world has no problem with Jesus, friends. Not, not religion. No, a little Jesus, a little re religion in moderation. That's all fine. But don't let him be your everything. Be balanced. Be moderate. This world isn't going to get angry with your love for sex, food, drink, education, money. It's never going to get angry at you, never for following your dreams. If a man buys a large home or a fancy car, his friends gather around him to celebrate his achievements. Somebody graduates from college or masters or lands that high dream job. We celebrate. But when a young man or woman gives everything to Jesus, we say, you're a fanatic. Even Christian parents are often disappointed with their adult children for making decisions for the glory of the king. What we find in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, is a fanatic. You only have one alabaster jar. Where are you going to spill it? Go and love Jesus like this fanatic. Go love Jesus with extravagance. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.